Hi everyone, welcome to Potluck Food Talks. Today I'm with my friend Alex Chaparro. He's a sociologist who lives in New York. Hi Alex, how are you doing? Hi Irish, always good to see you, always good to talk to you. One of my longest friends I've had in my life and always exciting to see what you're up to, Irish. Thanks for inviting me. I wanted to talk with you about street food in general, but specifically street food in New York and how Can this intertwine with sociology, uh, you with your background as a sociologist? What can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, I had a food cart of myself in New York. It was kind of my first experience of employment in New York, kind of not wanting to have a boss and being my own boss. And yeah, like the options of what you can do in a new city as an immigrant are kind of limited sometimes. And we would see kind of the great value that people give towards food and eating out here in New York. And there is kind of this lauded appreciation for a lot of international cultures, as they say, you know, like uh, how deep rooted Chinese food culture is in every city in the world, how deeply rooted Mexican food culture has become everywhere in the world. And we were seeing that Venezuelan food was kind of being like the new big hit in New York. You know, like everybody had already tried every version of El Pastor Taco. Everybody had already tried, you know, every variation of pho, of, you know, like these very beloved street food classics. And the arepa, you know, like something that for us is very commonplace. We eat it every morning. We don't think that highly of, or we don't think of it being something so special. Suddenly, if you're seeing it from an outsider's perspective, Maybe like a gringo who has never tried it. You know, it's this corn flour, crunchy pita bread. It's like its own very unique experience, usually filled with like a butter to give it some fat, a salty white cheese with black beans, sweet plantains, avocado. So for the people who hadn't tried that and that wasn't that common, it was like the new thing that was blowing people's minds here. And arepas are, you know, undoubtedly our most traditional food tied to our national identity and that we're very proud of. But it is not the most popular food that you find in the street in Caracas, but actually is the hot dog and hamburger, which seems kind of silly because it's a very U.S. thing. But it speaks to like the closeness that Venezuela has geographically to the States. Yeah, I wanted to say that like culturally, Venezuela, the most popular sport is baseball and not football as in the rest of South America. And that there are many other indicators that show the influence of um, like North American culture is quite strong. But the Venezuelan hot dogs are their own thing. I haven't seen anything like that nowhere else. Maybe in South America, like there are other places where hot dogs could be similar. But the thing that you have like this buffet of 20 different sauces and this act that after each bite, you add a different sauce to your hot dog or, or your burger and everything is so like excessive and nasty. Like you want the burger with extra avocado and a fried egg and bacon and, you know, like everything. That's quite Venezuelan. Yeah. And it also speaks a lot to the culture of street food because I think the evolution of the Perrero cart, the hot dog hamburger carts that, as I was saying, is kind of like the most popular you would find in every corner, especially kind of in working class neighborhoods and kind of 
neighborhoods next to big office buildings. And it speaks to the culture of street food because I think all of those variations came from competition from one cart to the other. So like maybe the first cart was offering kind of onions and cabbage and crushed potato chips as kind of like a special thing to make their hot dog special. And then everybody's flocking towards that cart. So that meant that the other carts started to have to offer the same thing. Then added to that was like the shredded cheddar cheese, you know, that kind of became like a mountain over the hot dog. And all of these things were kind of a way to kind of one up the next person. With the burgers, it started being the same thing. It stopped being just a slice of hamburger meat, but also a pork chop and chicken and variations like the cuatro por cuatro, the widow maker, you know, like the idea of making kind of the most elaborate thing to catch the attention of a consumer that has a lot of different options in the street. And yeah, the influence of the United States culture is a good and bad thing. It kind of speaks to cultural imperialism, kind of how much our culture in the 20th century, you know, was kind of obscured by kind of how much influence we would come from the United States. But it's a beautiful thing of syncretism, which is something that South America has always been kind of known for, which is like taking the influence that is kind of force fed upon us and make it in our own. We've been doing it with like saints. You know, the Catholic Church has been trying to say like, hey, you got to worship this saint. And oh, yeah. And we like change his clothes, change his variety, make it look more like, you know, black indigenous people of these regions and kind of make it into our own. Yeah. And like you can find this in any aspect of culture, I would say, like music genres, like rock music or hip hop music that somehow it's adopted by first imitating and then creating its own variation with its own identity. Yeah. Like hip hop is a great example. Yeah. The, the Venezuelan hip hop culture right now is so rich. It also kind of always speaks to me to like origin cultures too. And like been interesting has been discussed recently is kind of the like Caribbean roots of hip hop and graffiti. You know, a lot of times we're thinking that we're taking a quote unquote United States culture and remixing it to make our own. But if you dig in deeper, you see that, for example, the first DJs in New York City were Caribbean, right? Yeah. Scott LaRock, DJ Cool Herc, who were Caribbean and who were bringing what was happening in the Caribbean to the United States and the United States was making a remix to that. The, what's kind of like lamentable is that the United States relies so much on the idea of cultural supremacy and cultural imperialism that they have to create a narrative that like, we created this. This is a very United States thing and everybody else is doing it is just kind of imitating us because if there's something the United States knows how to do is make something really popular worldwide. But I think by kind of working through it, we are able to dismantle all of these origin story myths and kind of make things, you know, back into like what makes each of these individualities actually rich. Going back to the food topic, I think that there are also examples, especially in New York, of maybe the opposite, like traditions that were required to adapt to the local demand uh, to be understood. Mm -hmm. uh, I could think of the Chinese. You told me something when we were like yeah. in Chinatown eating, like how the gastronomic offer evolved from its origin to what it is right now. I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of great things come from that need to satisfy a palate that is not your own. Most of the things that we understood of kind of like popular modern Chinese food, the chop suey, all of these things are kind of an invention that happened in the United States 
from immigrants trying to make what they think would appease the United States people. And beautiful things come from that, you know? And not to like talk so much shit about the United States, but like the hamburger, you know, like it's obviously not from Hamburg or the United States, but it's kind of like what beautiful things can happen when things kind of get displaced and out of context and recreated. But I wanted to talk about what you're saying now, because I was thinking about this before jumping on the podcast about what makes New York street food really special to me. And to me, I think that what makes it really special is that it has an opportunity to not have to necessarily play into those dynamics of having to satisfy someone else. And I was thinking, and, and this is the sociologist and me kind of going off the, the sidetrack, but I was thinking about this book by Octavio Paz called The Labyrinth of Solitude. It's nine different essays about like the Mexican identity. And the title has to do a little bit about how it's kind of like a labyrinth where you eventually will just feel lonely trying to find yourself in a identity with other people around the idea of nationality. But on the introduction of that book, they say a really interesting description about San Diego, California, where my mother is from. And I, I would like to speak, you know, about what I know, you know, New York and San Diego in this country, at least. And my comparison to that and using this kind of essay as a reference is that what Octavio Paz was describing is a city where all of the architecture is Spanish colonial and Mexican. You know, the buildings, the houses, the plazas, they're like Mexican. There's Mexican names on the streets. There's Mexican culture everywhere. The most popular food is Mexican. But there is this very clear divide between the white American culture that is supposedly defined San Diego and this Mexican culture that is always there kind of in a clear separation. And it becomes kind of sad when you think about the street food culture and kind of what that ends up representing. You know, what do you think of when you think of Mexican food in California? Tacos, right? Like Yeah, but also this abomination called the burrito. Yeah, that, that it doesn't exist in Mexico. Yeah, it has nothing to do with Mexican culture. And the biggest pride about, you know, L.A. street burritos and San Diego, <laughs> the biggest, baddest burrito. And another thing that I used to always kind of cringe at was this idea of like the carne asada. It was always kind of pronounced with this like American voice, carne asada burritos or carne asada fries. And... To me, it was like always like kind of really disappointing or kind of like showing how, I don't know, there was always kind of this catering to what the gringo's idea of Mexican food would be. And not to diss on it, those burritos are really delicious. There can be really amazing, like what they call Tex-Mex food or Mexican-American food. And it's a very rich culture about that syncretism we were talking about earlier. But one thing that I think is really special about New York street food is that I feel that this city, New York, is so strongly defined by its immigrant population that those white United Statesians can't really make this claim that this is like our city and you're here to cater to us or that the culture is defined by the United States and everybody else is like an immigrant. This city is made, what is interesting in every corner that you see, is the amount of diversity of culture and and not white United Stadiums like vacuum culture. And 
And that's what makes it really rich and beautiful. And if you take that to street food, you get this really rare opportunity that in one city you're able to try. And this is kind of like a loaded term and some people like it or not, but really like authentic food. I completely agree. I, I was just going to mention that in my two trips I've had to New York, I feel that you have like a showcase of completely different cultures. You could try a restaurant or a, a street food vendor from each island of the Caribbean in one week. You could do that if you wanted uh, in New York and you get the feeling that it's authentic. I don't know. I've been in places like, for instance, Chinese restaurants in Germany that I feel just someone went to an Asian supermarket and mixed all the ingredients with rice and that's where, what they're serving you. <laughs> and here it was completely the opposite. You get flavors and things uh, that you don't find elsewhere. Yeah, and you get the experience to be amazed or be introduced to something that you don't maybe know already and can kind of expand your heart, your life, your mind. And that kind of really goes back to why I'm so interested in street food or why I have such a like a strong affinity to street food. There's many variations of street food, like the cart, the little window, the little bakery that offers things to go. But to me, it, it summarizes or it defines by like a food that satisfies a working class's need, you know, like or a working community's need. So It has to be usually centered around like the lunchtime or kind of the commute to work and back to home. You know, things that you might eat sitting down and taking a long time or things that you might eat kind of on the go walking around. And I feel that in kind of those examples, you, for example, in a city like New York, you get a offering of food that instead of trying to cater to like a wider population or like, you know, to call it by its name, to try to appeal to the white bourgeoisie of the United States, there are people who are born here, which I feel happens a lot of like the restaurant culture where we try to kind of get in on the blogs and we try to get, you know, Peter, this person to kind of come and review us and give us the, you know, the approval from the New York Times or from Eater. And a lot of times, you know, Those places also have a lot of interest in other cultures. And I felt that when I had my restaurant that I felt that like the ultimate objective would be to be accepted by kind of the snobby culture of like, quote unquote, high quality food or kind of like high dining experience. So we were trying to make hot dogs and hamburgers, but I felt in the way that we were marketing, the way that we were using Instagram, the way we were making our recipes, even we're kind of always catering to try to satisfy someone else, you know? And I think I'm excited for the street food culture future in New York. For example, at least in Venezuela, because there's a bigger population of Venezuelans growing right now. And I'm excited to see kind of the street food culture that maybe like, instead of trying to satisfy the gentrifying neighborhood, tries to satisfy kind of the local community that they're in. The people that are interested in getting that food that satisfies their own taste and that creates their own kind of demand within their own community. And then later, if anybody from the outside is interested in connecting with that, they're welcome. But it's kind of on their own terms, you know, in a way. Yeah, going back to the Venezuela as a gastronomical offer that can be exported. I remember 20 years ago. There was this, uh, what's the name? Arepa Bar in New York. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, that was the only one that was like a reference. I mean, like worldwide that I knew of. Just a plain arepa place or a plain place where you get cachapas. Not, not, not like a fancy 
outdoor restaurant or something like this. Right. And this was very difficult to see like in countries like Germany or Spain. And in the last five, seven years, this has been completely flipped. Like you find arepa place and cachapa places in every city, anywhere, I would say. Of course, as a consequence of the massive migration due to the social crisis right now. Yeah, and I think that's a good example. This restaurant that you're referring to right now did a really good job of kind of introducing Venezuelan street food and making it attractive to the average gringo. And they did a really good job of it. They had really good graphic design. They had really good presentation of the dishes in Venezuela. But also that restaurant is kind of notoriously known for making the reina pepiada without mayonnaise, you know? And reina pepiada is one of like the most beloved uh, fillings in arepa, which is a avocado chicken salad and very simple ingredients, avocado, shredded chicken, cilantro, mayo, salt and lime but like the mayo being a big part of that you know kind of the fattiness that most simple arepa filling you can make at home delicious but there was this idea that like adding mayonnaise would be gross quote unquote to the united Stadiums. yeah no 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 absolutely and i i've also seen the same i would call it a, a defect or a non-authentic variation in restaurants here in spain where you see this reina pepeada like dark green and it's like no that's not the way it is like it has mayo and that's how it's supposed to be and it's okay and this restaurant it was like one was located in the lower east side in manhattan you know very high wealthy area and the other was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a neighborhood known kind of as the heart of like gentrification in New York. And that's something I kind of want to talk about next. But we've been seeing a lot more Venezuelan restaurants open up in Jackson Heights, Queens, uh, neighborhoods that might not be so gentrified or so high kind of value in the real estate market. But there are kind of housing, you know, families, large communities, and you're seeing kind of offering at these restaurants of patacones, of yoyos, of things that to me are even more interesting about kind of the rich varieties of street food in Venezuela. The yoyos being, for example, a sandwich made where the bread is made out of sweet plantains, made into kind of like a patty, hard enough to handle, and then filled with like shredded beef and the typical things you would put on a hamburger. Can you also explain patacones, what they are? Patacones is something similar, but with green fried plantains. You fry them and then you smash them together to make a strong enough patty. And then you fill them with like the typical things you would fill on a street food cart for a steak sandwich or a hamburger, which is kind of all those sauces you talked about. You know, you can put kind of salty white cheese I would say it's one of the most distinctive things of, I would say Caribbean, but probably Africa as well. What I think is really beautiful about street food is that you find this amazing richness of food culture that doesn't have to be necessarily tied to an idea of privilege, an idea of quality linked to necessarily exclusivity or ingredients that are uncommon. You know, sometimes a lot of times in street food, we find foods that are used with very common ingredients that doesn't have a high price point, but they can have like a deeper, rich root in someone's love for that food that makes it so much more delicious and strong and powerful. We've become kind of accustomed to value things by their 
exclusivity or their elaborate effort to be done as a catering to us. And I see it very much in the food culture. And I experienced that having a food offering where you would feel that you would want to like make your prices every time a little bit higher. And you would want to kind of like cater to the people who are willing to pay $14 for a burger with a brioche bun and all these status symbols or symbols of like higher quality. And I was thinking of the example of Osaka, Japan. It was a part of Japan that was known for its merchants. It was like known for the people who would sell garments and, you know, just basically the things you would sell to people kind of on the street and stores. At one point, there was this emperor who decided that the merchants were in the lowest caste of society. So officially and by decree of the government, they weren't allowed to buy property and they weren't allowed to like serve in high ranks in the government and such. So they were kind of ostracized with their money, kind of like in this way, like this anti-capitalist sentiment, like, hey, you sell shit to me. You're like the worst of the worst. You're just trying to get money out of my pocket and fuck you. Merchants suck. But I thought it was really beautiful that what kind of emerged in Osaka is the fact that since people didn't have money to spend on a house or belongings that would have kind of equity, that would have greater value over time, there developed a culture where people would just spend all their money on food and drinking. So these merchants would get out of work and they would have nothing else to do with their money. So they would drink and eat out because that's the only thing they could do with their money. (laughs) And Osaka made some of the most iconic street foods of Japan that are really popular all over the world now, like takoyaki, the balls of uh, squid with batter that are fried in little balls, okonomiyaki, the cabbage pancake. Oh, yeah. A lot of this comes from the streets of Osaka of not having anything to do with your money than to like spend it and enjoy it, you know? And this idea again about like the bouginess of like fine dining experience of trying to get the most artisanal rose for your coffee or the highest grade hot dog or that was bespokely made by a butcher in Red Hook Gowanus or whatever. Then the experience of just the street food culture where you just have to, you know, everybody, you know, the merchant, the person who doesn't really have high status in life, enjoy really delicious experiences on a day-to-day basis, you know? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about like uh, a top five of your favorite street food vibes and, and why in the context of everything you just said. Going back to New York, thinking about these like iconic things of eating out in the street that can like blow your mind and blow your heart and soul. I'll talk about the neighborhood that I live in, which is Crown Heights, Brooklyn. It's known to be kind of one of the biggest hubs for the West Indians, La Jantillas, as we know it in Spanish and the Caribbean. And two of the things that I really love the most are rotis and bakes. These are... Again, kind of like a covered in bread meat. You can take it out to go. Uh The roti is this really delicious flatbread. Is it like a shredded potato, like the French roti or something completely different? Well, it's an Indian flatbread. Okay. But it became really popular in the West Indies. And I think what's really 
interesting about it is that it has some sort of grain kind of involved in it too, like a pea flour okay. and shredded peas within the bread itself. And so it has this very kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, kind of like this really flaky bread with a lot of fluffiness to it. And it's usually filled with like a chicken stew, a curry goat, an oxtail stew. And one of the things that I think kind of like makes it really dear to my heart and that reminds me a lot of back home is this like delicious tamarind sauce. Oh, yeah. That usually goes along with it. Sometimes it can be spicy. Sometimes it can be not, but it's usually sweet. And for anybody who likes barbecue or the idea of kind of like a sweet condiment to me, this takes that to like the next level by adding that, you know, tanginess and citrus flavor of the tamarind, which is so delicious. And the other dish that I really like around my neighborhood is the bake and codfish, which is, it's called bake, but it's actually fried. And it's this big disc of fried bread, which like kind of the most easy way to understand it is like a savory donut or a donut that hasn't been added any sugar or glazing. So it has that same kind of feeling that you would have with kind of fried bread out of a donut. They open up in the middle and they fill it with saltfish salad. So like a cod or a, a bacalao, a salted fish that is broken down, mixed with aki, different vegetables. So you normally have this for breakfast, this fried donut filled with salty fish with tamarind sauce. This is also from also from West Indies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you'd normally find it in most of the bakeries here. Uh, usually you can only get it till 11 a.m. because it's a breakfast food. And to me, I would have to say that it's like my top breakfast experience, you know, to eat this like fried bread filled with salty fish. It reminds me a lot of the empanada de cazón in Venezuela, uh, which is usually like a corn flour empanada filled with baby shark salad. Yeah, like a baby shark stew, I would say. Like, yeah, like stewed in a tomato sauce. My God, you know that experience, Erich, you know, how good that could be. The beauties of street food or street food culture, which, which is what happens in Chinatown or the Chinatowns in New York, which are really kind of well known. There's many different Chinatowns in New York. There's a Manhattan one. There's a Brooklyn one in Sunset Park and the one in Flushing, Queens. The one in Flushing and one in Brooklyn, they're just bigger. There's more variety with the regions of China that are usually represented there. But the one in Manhattan is one of my favorites just because I'm usually around Manhattan and it's such a beautiful experience to get to walk through it. In Chinatown, you see this beautiful example of a community kind of serving itself about the dollar of that immigrant population staying within that community. And it kind of speaks a lot to kind of the problems or kind of the challenges that immigrants have in the United States, where you usually have this offering about integration, like integrate within the country, integrate within the idea of the American dream or the American promise. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but I've seen what that ends up with a lot of different cultures, like the African-American culture, how, you know, the idea of the Democrats is like, oh, integrate, be part of this. And then you see kind of the offerings of like people like Malcolm X or black nationalists where they're like, hey, no, a stronger way to kind of make our communities stronger is by creating self-reliance, by understanding how we have to kind of protect ourselves and kind of cater ourselves first. There's a lot to unpack there and a lot to talk. And we'll talk about that in another podcast. But you see it in Chinatown, this offerings on street food 
that seem to be to cater to like people's kind of like comfort foods. And to me, one of the greatest comfort foods that I take a lot of happiness to be able to connect with in New York is congee, which is kind of that. It's like a rice soup, not right? It's a rice porridge. Mm -hmm. Again, talking about kind of the idea of something being valuable because it's exclusive or it's high value ingredients or high cost ingredients. Kanji started as a way to kind of feed more people with less food. So the way that you normally make it is kind of like you're making rice. You normally would make rice with two cups of water, one cup of rice. This was usually like 12 cups of water for one cup of rice. And to cook it for a long time, for it to create that starchiness, a food that kind of expands and multiplies. But again, even in, if you're satisfying kind of the need to feed yourself economically, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be something that can be incredibly valuable personally, culturally, and as a food experience. So kanji is usually, there's like chicken kanji, there's octopus kanji, there's multiple mushroom kanji, there's different kind of stews that can go into it, different presentations, usually be served with fried bread. So especially in a city that has such a cold winter as New York, being able to go to Chinatown and find kind of like different places that have their own servings of kanji you see kind of like a big pot with a nice crust of starch around the edge. And yeah, having this like big, hot, goopy rice porridge with like savory pieces of chicken and soy sauce and a fried bread to dump into it. It's one of the best experiences, my, my favorite food experiences. I can't wait for you to come back, Arish, to, to take you to some <laughs> of my favorites. Yeah, I remember we walked by uh, and it was closed, if um, if I don't remember wrong. But uh, I, I, that was a super nice walk we had in Chinatown. We had we had dim sums, different types of skewers, cakes. It was special because it was kind of a lot of places that we could kind of stop in and out. There were foods that you can take kind of on the go. So we started with some Vietnamese beef jerky. Ah, yeah. As it's known here. So it's just like dehydrated meat that is condimented beforehand. Super delicious. And then we stopped by a few bakeries that had pork buns, one specifically known for its pork and pineapple buns. So it's kind of like a sweet pastry filled with pork. And we also had some egg custard buns, which to me were a big highlight. We thought they were going to be savory, but they were actually kind of sweet. And so it's just kind of the yolk of the egg inside of a kind of like a bowel type bun. But with, I would say, 50-50 between savory and sweet, but a really delicious experience. I really wanted to, you to take you to the skewer carts that they had in Grand, but I'm just finding out that it's more of like a nighttime cart than a daytime when we went. And it's this cart that has this delicious skewer served over charcoal. So you get this feeling of eating something in a barbecue right in the street of, you know, middle of Manhattan. And they usually have like enoki mushroom covered with bacon, king oyster mushrooms, scallops covered in bacon, sweet potatoes wrapped in aluminum foil put into the charcoals. So a food that you can eat in the street that is, again, incredibly delicious. We also stopped by the dumplings and some of my favorite dumpling spots that again, are kind of really well known in New York because they appear in every like cheap eat list. Like, oh, you can have four or five 
delicious chive and pork dumplings that are fried or steamed for a dollar fifty in New York. And I know I'm like contradicting myself because I was just saying earlier how these things can be valuable specifically because they're not expensive. But I also want to kind of highlight how I also don't really like when it's kind of always thought as like a cheap food. Like I like to think of it as like not bougie, like not unnecessarily overpriced or not unnecessarily sold to you as a as a marker of privilege, but more as something that can have just value in and of itself. It being affordable is something that obviously makes the experience of eating, to me at least, much happier. <laughs> but I don't like to think of it as like cheap food. And like when I like to look for dumplings in Manhattan, I don't necessarily like to go follow the cheap food guides because most of that food is already kind of inexpensive. So sometimes those cheap food guides would send you, oh, these dumplings are only a dollar a dozen. But, you know, the store next door has them for a dollar fifty a dozen. And they're they're really good, too. You know, like it doesn't necessarily have to go for like these like porn of cheapness or of unexpensiveness. A lot of the things I'm talking about in this podcast, they're nuanced, you know, like catering to other people sometimes can create really beautiful things. Sometimes fine dining experiences can be amazing. Authentic is something that is like a very questionable term to use because sometimes people want you to be authentic and that means that you can't really change a recipe of where you're from. And I think that's bullshit. You know, like there's a lot of offerings I think in New York City that might not be traditional, but they're still authentic. All of this is kind of to just say that I think the experience of eating, the experience of connecting with a city is always enriched when you read about its history, when you read about the different factors involved, when you talk to the people that's eating there, when you kind of see the like cultures and dynamics that are connected to a specific food. And when you kind of eat and connect to a city like that, it really enriches your experience and kind of makes you a more nuanced experience. But I think culture and the dynamics of power in cities in the 21st century that we're living now is incredibly complex, but it always kind of starts a conversation. And that's why it's interesting to go kind of on a food tour with you, you know, to listen to these types of podcasts or kind of to like learn more about the foods that we're shoving in our faces. Another thing I will say is that the idea of authenticity and kind of like cheapness or unaffordability has to be sometimes kind of seen with a little nuance because that can be also problematic too when sometimes people are like, oh no, tacos have to be cheap. Tacos are cheap and that's a cheap food. And then you see kind of like offerings like Enrique Oliveira or Cosme or something like that. And it is really groundbreaking where you take that type of food and present it kind of on the world stage of you know, high fine dining. So you have to be careful to not fall into another colonizing mindset of kind of seeing things in a way that you want to exoticize them or want to kind of make them fit into your idea of what they're supposed to be. Because again, it falls again to what we were saying earlier about the other person catering to you or the other person being there to satisfy your expectation. And what we kind of, I think, is beautiful about connecting with street food is 
to actually connect beyond your perspective, you know, like expanding it, expanding what you know, being kind of humbled by what your expectation of something can be. So like cheap food can be expensive, expensive food can be cheap, uh, uh, cheap food can be bad, expensive food can be bad. You know, it's about connecting something that has a little bit more soul and kind of history behind it. That's it for this week's episode of Potluck Food Talks. If you like what we're doing, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok as Potluck Food Talks. The show airs every Monday.